0: Welcome to this AMR audio interview sponsored by ASME Applied Mechanics Reviews and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host Harry Dankovich and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. We hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal, and more technically-focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. My guest today is Wei Chen, Wilson Cook Professor in Engineering Design in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Northwestern University. With all her degrees in mechanical engineering, Professor Chen first completed a Bachelor of Science in 1988 from Shanghai Jiao Tong University, then a Master's degree from the University of Houston in 1992, and finally a Ph.D. from Georgia Tech in 1995. She joined Northwestern in 2003 as a social professor after holding faculty appointments at Clemson University immediately after finishing at Georgia Tech and later with the University of Illinois at Chicago. Since 2009, she heads the Predictive Science and Engineering Design Cluster at her home institution. Professor Chen became ASME Fellow in 2009 and Associate Fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics in 2003. In 1998, she was awarded the ASME Pi-Taw Sigma Gold Medal Achievement Award and in 2014, the Design Automation Award from the Design Engineering Division in ASME. Her dedication to engineering education was also recognized by the Ralph R. Teeter Education Award from the Society of Automotive Engineering in 2006. Professor Chen's service on behalf of the design community is extensive and most recently reflected in her appointment as editor of the Journal of Mechanical Design, effective January 2018. Between 2009 and 2015, she successively stepped through the office positions in the Design Engineering Division Executive Committee, after having similarly served the Design Automation Executive Committee. Professor Chen is a prolific author and contributor of scholarly publications, in 2012, she published a monograph, Decision-Based Design, Integrating Consumer Preferences into Engineering Design, co-authored with her former students, Christopher Hoyle and Henk-Jan Wassenaar. Her paper, Comparative Studies of Meta-Modeling Techniques Under Multiple Modeling Criteria, published in 2001 in the journal Structural and Multidisciplinary Optimization, has been cited more than 800 times. Indeed, 25 of her publications have been cited more than 100 times each. She holds a U.S. patent for a vacuum pump system for prosthetic limbs and a China patent on unidirectional fiber composites. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in Rosemont, Illinois, on June 6, 2018. Professor Chen Wei, I'm delighted to have you here. Uh, We've known each other for some time, and Mm -hmm. it's really wonderful to have a chance to talk to you. Thank
1: you so much for inviting me.
0: Both of us are editors now of an ASME journal. uh, And I know, of course, in my own case, how one has to be sort of deliberate about that and think through the goals and the aspirations Mm -hmm. that one has. You took this on now in January of this year. If you have any thoughts or ideas on your vision of the journal and what you would like Mm -hmm. to see happen over the next several years, I thought maybe this Mm -hmm. would be a good time.
1: Yeah. First, I never thought that it takes so much work to be an editor. Um, I have been learning during the past couple months um, with the large nova paper coming every day. The first task is really to learn what are the kind of uh, paper suits this journal, and I'm still learning that. But in terms of my vision, um, JMD, Journal of Mechanical Design, has been considered as the best journal in the in in my field, and the field is really engineering design research engineering design um, so I would like to really want to continue to keep the high quality of the journal and the other things i 'd really like to work on is first we, we never end in try to uh, improve the our speed of how we can quickly return you know the the comments to the to the authors to so the review process and i 'm working. On it and trying to figure out different way to to expedite the process. Other than that, is really I I feel like a journal should set up a new directions for the field. So I've been talking to many colleagues about what are the special issue topic for the coming year. So this year we're doing a special issue on design of engineered materials and structural system. So it's called the DEMS. And we, we are in the process almost uh, close to the finish of the, I think, it almost complete about halfway through, I would say, the review process. So So I'm identifying new topics for the coming years. And the other thing I really like to do is to invite articles. You know, we talked about this is how it's important to have good review articles and also really... Uh, good papers i think in my area it's this question about how do we validate a design research so i'm in the process of working with some people on writing articles on those subjects
0: so i'm I'm sort of curious about journals these days Mm -hmm. uh it used to be that a journal was something that came out in hard copy after all and it was bound and it was you know collected and you could sort of Think Mm -hmm. of papers as belonging together, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a special issue, for example, right, Mm -hmm. that was a physical copy of something where a number of papers that had something in common were collected together and you Mm -hmm. could take that copy with you and and Mm -hmm. read, you know. These days, of course, no one really accesses papers, typically mm-hmm. anyway, through a hard copy. Mm-hmm. It's all done online, right? Yeah. Through, you yeah. access them through databases or through the, the journal's own webpage. Uh, and, of course, there's plethora of, of uh, outlets that publish papers yes. on similar material. Materials. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what is the nature of a journal today? It's clearly not the physical copy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is it the people that are have their names associated with the journal that creates a sort of a credential for why this journal has a value versus maybe another journal. Mm-hmm. It, it's not necessarily the readership, right? Because we can't control you know, we have no idea who's accessing this and hopefully lots of people are yes. who are not mm-hmm. necessarily even authors of the journal, right? Or yes. or no. yeah. mm-hmm. So well how do you how do you imagine defining a journal today the you said the journal of mechanical design has a reputation what does that mean that the journal has a reputation yeah
1: so i think uh, the journal is recognized by for example we have a culture that we apply very high standard in the review process so a paper uh, same paper sent it to a different journal can be, you know, can be accepted, but it might be rejected, you know, or has a high chance to be rejected by journal mechanical design. We have a much lower acceptance rate compared to some other journals. But going back to what is the what are the kind of a leadership role that we can play. I think I, I don't know whether the same question as some colleagues asked me, why do you need to organize a special issue? You know, because good paper will be cited, right? So I reflecting on the on the process we're going through, I think there are some good reasons. You know, first that we kind of try to push the community on um, some specific topic, because we have deadline. You know, people tend to not to submit the paper if there's no deadline. And the second thing is that we have um, a group of people who work very hard to try to review the paper more quickly. For example, one of my colleagues I work with is from computer science, and he was actually surprised that his paper with GMD was reviewed only within a month he got an answer, you know. So I think it's it's a way to also bring in the other discipline to pay attention to this journal.
0: But if you do a special issue, if there were ways in which the authors of different manuscripts, I mean, I, I suppose it happens that, you know, authors who contribute to a special issue may end up being invited to review some of the papers that were submitted, the other papers that were submitted, right? That might yes, happen, right? Yes, it
1: happens quite a lot. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but, but, the, but, of course, the process does not allow for... Uh, modifying one's own paper in light of learning about what other people are doing there's no time Mm -hmm. for that it's all happening simultaneously Mm -hmm. right so which does end up meaning that you know yes you have these ways of expediting the process you have you can impose deadlines you can maybe bring in authors Mm -hmm. that wouldn't otherwise consider publishing but the special issue still the question that your colleague asked of Mm -hmm. why a special Mm -hmm. issue Mm -hmm. sort of is still valid in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. once the thing is published, Mm -hmm. there is nothing obvious about it as being a a collection of papers because Mm -hmm. there's nothing that ties it together other than the discipline versus, I suppose, Mm -hmm. right? A Mm -hmm. special issue that was the result of maybe inviting, you know, 20 authors to submit draft manuscripts, Mm-hmm. Then all of the authors get to see yes. all of the draft manuscripts. Yes. Then uh-huh. they all get to provide whatever feedback, yep. maybe there's yeah. some sort mm-hmm. of community or a panel or whatever mechanism that mm-hmm. they can share some ideas. Then they all go back home and rewrite their drafts to a final version where they can now take into account. And all yeah. of a sudden you've generated yeah. something that wouldn't have happened otherwise.
1: Yeah, so we do have some mechanism to synthesize what's coming up in this special issue, which is the special... Uh, edit editorial right you know the, so the the we, we have guest editor who work for the special issue that will look at all the papers at right. the end the right editorial and try to put them together in terms of the the state of the art and it, as well as the few some future directions right. um, on the other hand i don't think that we are doing a comprehensive study as you were talking about some reflection um, i think um this't n- it's not done formally but i would think that once the special issue is out, um, if it provides good, you know, papers, it will provide good guidance to the community in terms of the, what are the interesting directions, yeah. you know, in the field. Yeah.
0: In, in engineering, we have less of a, of a tradition of posting preprints on these archive servers that, you know, some mm-hmm. of the other disciplines in the yeah. physics, physical mm-hmm. sciences and mathematical sciences, mm-hmm. where they rely on preprints that are in preliminary stages that at least you know you post them for a variety of reasons it could be that you want to establish precedence but it could also be that you want to open up to the community what's going on so people know yes. and people can mm-hmm. comment mm-hmm. um and then ultimately then turn it into a journal paper right after mm-hmm. it's potentially gone through several revisions, several revisions through yes. some of the mm-hmm. archive yeah. deposit mm-hmm. we don't tend to do this very much mm-hmm. right? we mm-hmm. use conferences to, to a degree, to. To share ongoing work. Yeah. Um, but in the absence of sort of posting things and maybe getting direct feedback on an actual publication, uh, the thing that we then publish in a journal is sort of, it's not necessarily alive after that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, there's sort of, you know, the, the suggestion I made a few minutes ago about how mm-hmm. one could possibly have a conversation. What occurs to me is journals, traditionally, because of the way they were printed and hard copy Mm -hmm. and all these things that we mentioned before and uh, and of course also the way in which uh, merit is counted accounted for we we get merits based on the number of of papers we publish for example right and the and the places we publish them and so on right Mm -hmm. that that once you publish something it's sort of done yeah it's out there it's done Mm -hmm. and you may be moving on you may be continuing to develop the ideas but the paper itself what you've once published you do not revisit
1: yeah. Right. Yeah. You, Yourself you, seldomly revisit. Right. You might cite you move, it. Yeah. You know, others
0: will cite yeah. it. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it's mm-hmm. done, right? Mm-hmm. And and it sort of has an archival nature, as if we were trying to preserve a historical record of when a particular statement was made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but that's not really the value. I mean, I don't know. I, I personally sort of wonder whether science mm-hmm. needs that, or mm-hmm. whether science is a much more living.
1: Subject mm-hmm. right that mm-hmm. evolves
0: and there's there's an opportunity to revisit
1: mm-hmm. and and
0: if one is less tied to this chunk of mm-hmm. of, of article right yeah right, sort yeah, of a closely yeah. you know well uh, um, encapsulated piece of of, of writing yeah. and instead focused on the development of the ideas that you know using these other kinds of mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Have, have, yeah. have you thought about any other ways? I mean, also yeah. to think about other ways of engaging.
1: Engaging people, right? It's yeah. not just
0: this encapsulated yeah. paper version, but something else.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I haven't really given too much thoughts on that. But I think it, what you were talking about is, is really a good thing to do. Um, we have other means like workshops that we go into a lot of detailed discussions, right? Um, but usually the workshops are not paper-centered, Right. Um, so I think what you're talking about is more paper-centered kind of discussion and uh, some reflection. I, th- I think some journal published some of those discussion type of articles, yeah.
0: How but many not papers do you uh, have to process the, in a year, would you say? Uh, the GMD right
1: now has about uh, close to 900 last year.
0: Submitted papers.
1: Yes, yeah, submitted papers last year.
0: And the, uh, the acceptance rate or the rejection uh, the rate? The
1: acceptance is? rate, I think it's about… 20 to 30%. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, my observation is that a large number actually will reject it like upfront because mm-hmm. many different reasons. Mm-hmm. So after the paper are signed for the review process, I think it's about 50%. I see. Yeah, acceptance rate. It's just roughly, you sure, know. Sure, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so you've now taken this on. This is a five-year appointment? Is yes, that right? yeah. Mm-hmm. And I described in my introduction, you know, Multiple five-year service ex- mm-hmm. or six-year, right, mm-hmm. with the executive committees in various service roles and so on. So you've been yeah. pretty much cr- providing service, I would say, for the mm-hmm. last 20 plus years, right? Yeah, since, yeah. Since mm-hmm. your graduation, mm-hmm. since your PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so what made you make this this decision to engage yourself so fully, mm-hmm. while you are obviously a, as I said, a prolific author, you know, mm-hmm. heavily active in a variety mm-hmm. of of research areas and, and, you know, writing books that mm-hmm. are going to be helpful. This must mm-hmm. be, a, a you know, a decision that one makes that yeah, it's not yeah. an obvious thing. Yeah,
1: I think, yeah, when, when we take on the professorship, I, I recall that we kind of, we are told we have three major responsibility. right? That's research, teaching, and a service. So service is always an important a part of it. Um, sometimes I'm thinking back of how I get into this position. Sometimes, you know, I, I, were, I were asked by people uh-huh. to do the job. But gradually, maybe I don't know. I, I, I think maybe I'm I'm tend to be more um, interested in organizing things, you know, like getting things organized is always something that um, I, I try to accomplish. So so I guess this kind of fits well with the service nature of uh, many of this work. Yeah. Need someone who really pay attention to organizing. But on the other hand, I think it's a it's really the, the motivation is to try to make an impact. That's, you know, I learned from my senior officers or the people who worked for the society is their passion toward the society is try to do something that they can make a change. So yeah. I, I think this editor's job, as I mentioned, um, it, it is a lot of work that I really truly, you know, respect and admire all those past editors, you know, the time and the effort they put in and you also editor yourself, you know. Um, so I think um, it's if it's not to try to make an impact, probably it's not I think it's, if it's just for organizing things, that's not the only reason to do it.
0: Do you yeah. remember the first person who asked you to take on? I mean, not this editorship, Yeah, like way back.
1: Oh, I I don't remember exactly. But who started, was it who
0: tricked you into yeah, this? Yeah,
1: I think it's more the design automation committee. Yeah. It, it's a stronger, very strong committee, uh-huh. like with a lot of the senior uh, leaders, like uh, my advisor for Rook Panas Parnas Pampanambas, these are the people who set very good example, you know, for the, for the other people who follow. But it's a group of good people like uh, uh, Judy Vance, who is my female colleague, you know, that uh, we, um, you know, she, she is really giving me also a lot of encouragement in the, in the process. So, um, so I think there's a lot of role models, I would say. Does it go mm.
0: further back than that? Your your commitment to service. You you're from mm-hmm. China.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: did, in your upbringing, is there a sort of a, a sense of community, uh, a sense of contributing to society in some way that is reflected in?
1: Uh, well, I I think it's yeah. I, I, it's interesting that you asked this question. Never thought about this, but I think starting when I was a child, I was. Asked to, to play some role like in the school, you know, like the um, the, the president of the student organization uh-huh. or something uh-huh. like that. Yeah. So I think I was put on those positions. and my my mom always encouraged, my mother always encouraged me to take on those kind of responsibility uh-huh. because she think it's a it's a great way to uh, to to learn, you know, some important skills.
0: And of course, when mm-hmm. you do it well, you get asked to do it more. Right? Yeah,
1: that's, that's right. And also, I think that there's a, I kind of feel the community has a lot of uh, paying a lot of attention or giving a lot of opportunity to the female colleagues. Okay. So I think I'm fortunate enough to be in the era, era or time that female colleagues is really highly respected and uh, highly recognized. And uh, to some extent, I think that there are many people who can be qualified to do this editor's job, right? And I don't know, maybe one of the reasons I'm picked is, you know, I think this field or this community are still lacking female uh, leaders or editors, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, We're both going to a women's networking event yes, after yeah. we conclude yeah. this interview. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your thinking uh, about that type of an arrangement? Arrangement, you know, When you speak yes. about promoting mm-hmm. women and opportunities for, for women and making sure that there are role models and, and building a, com- a network. Of course, that shouldn't probably include only women, but, you know, quite frankly, I'm going to, right? Obviously, yes, it's, yeah. it's valuable mm-hmm. that, that it be a, a, a community event, not just... One group within the community. Yeah, yeah. What's your thought on this?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting also when I was junior, like a faculty, I really didn't pay too much attention to this kind of thing. I felt like, well, it may not be a good thing to have a, like an exclusive right. community that is gender-oriented. Yeah. Um, you know, why do we need this, right? But when I get a, a senior, you know, in my in my career, I, I start to see there's a lot of need to provide mentorship, mm-hmm. And especially female faculty are uh, experiencing a lot of uh, issues, not just at work, but also with family. So I, I start to go attend. I also even organized uh, such a very similar event. Uh, I think the major benefits I would like to see is really the senior faculty has fallen to share their experience with the junior faculty. So I view this as more as a service now, sure. uh, as but rather than just, to, of course, meeting with some female faculty is always fun. Were um, there
0: role models? So you said when you were junior faculty, yeah. there were events like this, perhaps. Yes, yeah. I don't know, the scale, of course. And you didn't attend them very much? Yes, yeah. Did I attended feel, some,
1: yeah, but not much. Yeah. Were,
0: were there role models for mm-hmm. you that you sort of could recognize yourself in? And that could be, of course, both male and female colleagues that mm-hmm. were more senior yeah, that that you could yeah. describe maybe. In- yeah, so I
1: can mention in my areas. Judy Vance, mm-hmm. who has been very heavily involved in the uh, a few of the the women's society. Actually, it's not just at her school, not just for design engineering; it's for the whole engineering community. Um, so she has been um, organizing many of those uh, symposiums. Right. So I attend a few of them, and I found very beneficial. So right. after attending those, I do feel it's very beneficial. Right. So on my campus, in my department, I have Kate Brinson, who was the department chair. Um, So she is a good role model. I have my close colleague, Chen Chow. Um, Also, I, I, I feel like I'm very fortunate, surrounded by many good people, you know, thinking about my career. I feel like, you know, I always meet good people. It seems like I work with good people. And those are the people who really set up very good uh, role models. They're very good role models, set good example for me.
0: You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from June 6, 2018, with Professor Wei Chen of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Northwestern University. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. I noticed in you shared your your CV with me, mm-hmm. um, and it described some of your research projects. And there were collaborations with a number of people, including those that you mentioned right now. Yeah. What are the What are the things about a collaboration or a collaborator mm-hmm. that makes it successful, or makes you want to come back and and do this again and, and, mm-hmm. and try for another opportunity? What What are the yeah. qualities that you found? Are particularly helpful.
1: Yeah, so I think I, I like collaborators to be very organized too. So that it's interesting that I have uh, uh, several projects of are, are pure women collaborators. Mm-hmm. I noticed that, mm-hmm. you know, especially with Kate Brinson, we have four PIs, co-PIs are all female. Um, so I think um, it's just make things easier in terms of following the schedule, you know, um, following certain format in terms of communication through different disciplines, right? Um, so I think um, the other things that I feel it's very natural for a design person that have to collaborate with somebody else. Um, I'm not really, I don't view myself as a mechanics person, you know, even though that I know a lot of people you interviewed are experts in the mechanics area. I'm more a engineering design person that I think engineering design research is the research, it's more about integration, so I I, I can think about any project now that is my I'm a single PI project. It's all collaborating with someone who are in doing analysis or who are someone who are from very different field like social science. I notice you are also working with on some very interesting problem that has a human aspect and social aspect. I think we have to work with people from other fields in order to make m- new. Breakthrough in our field, so I think the collaboration becomes very natural in terms of the how do you how do I set up my research direction.
0: But that's to, also very challenging, of course, when you work with people who speak a different language, jargon, different yes, language, yes. have different expectations for what yes. constitutes a model, for example, or a method of analysis. Yes, and, and have you come across ways in which that um, was an obstacle to successful collaboration, or? And yeah. and, if, and and have you successfully sort of navigated through those things with your collaborators?
1: Yeah, so I think it takes a lot of time to really learn from each other. So we have several projects these days involving four or five different, more than four or five, like, PIs. So if we count the student team, oftentimes it's more than 20 people having, mm-hmm. you know, a meeting. And we have very regular, like, a student meeting every week and then a PI meeting every Two weeks um, and I think a lot of the PI they're very busy and they tend to skip those meetings but I try to attend most of the meeting just to learn from each other you know learn the language right mm-hmm. you know I, I be, it, it took me maybe five years to truly understand maybe I still don't fully understand what is multi-scale modeling mm-hmm. you know by learning from my colleague wing Kam Liu mm-hmm. you know that Winkam Khan has been doing great work in this area but it still takes time to fully figure out that one of the things that you mentioned earlier is that I created this uh, interdisciplinary cluster um, called the Predictive Science Engineering Design. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about it and why do I do it. I've been working on model uncertainty quantification. So my core area is really design under uncertainty. So I'm not interested in anything that is stochastic-based, right? Uh, so one of the key issues these days is how do you quantify the model uncertainty,
0: design under uncertainty meaning that there are lots of things you don't know about the parts that go into the design or the behavior subsequently what what are the how, how do you how do you explain uncertainty outside of the jargon of your discipline
1: yeah so uncertainty can be related to the external environment like when a system or product operates. So translated into analysis is: are the loads can vary, you know, mm-hmm. from time to time. But uncertainty can be also related to the process itself. So in many of our cases, we're doing model-based design. So the model itself can have uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So those problems are becoming more interesting than just modeling the load variation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and how do study the, how do you study the impact of the uncertainty? And how do you find design decision that is um, really uh, mitigated those impact. So those are the kind of the topic that I'm interested in, in my work. So going back to the predictive science engineering design cluster is that I'm interested in model and certainly quantification. And then I realized that there's really a gap between the people who are doing modeling work, computational work, and the people who are doing experimental research. Um, so I think one of the motivation of those clusters actually bring the people from those areas together to communicate, to really understand each other. And at the end, I will, and the goal is really try to provide a prediction right, mm-hmm. of a system behavior. And, and in my case, I'm interested in design, so really the problem becomes how do I um, bring those model experiments to the level that can help me to make design decisions. So all those things are related, and I think it's just a great... We we do this in called interdisciplinary cluster at the PhD level. Mm-hmm. Um so students can really communicate and the, from this training process they kind of understand the language from the other fields.
0: Does the cluster have a, an actual degree associated with it or the degrees are still traditional degrees? But so, the students are yeah. trained.
1: So it's a good question. They have certificate mm-hmm. but not degree. Mm-hmm. And the uh, degree takes more like, uh, you know, courses to do. So mm-hmm. they, we still want to create a we call dual community for them. So they have their own departments in mechanical engineering or civil engineering. But at the same time, they have our cluster that we organize activities.
0: Right. I'm going to go back to China for a moment. Yes, um, yeah. So mm-hmm. how, so how old were you when you left China?
1: Yeah, I was like 24. Um, so I was two years um, um, after graduation, undergraduate degree.
0: And was yeah. that a... a Big step for you.
1: It is a big step because I think now I thinking back, um, the time we come to. Even though my both of my parents are has college degree, have college degree, but they are very unfortunate in the sense that the time that they are really in their thirty to forty. Uh, that's the Cultural Revolution, right? So they basically don't have any work to do. My parents, um, they are both in research institute at that time, but they don't have work or research to do. Hmm. So their time is really kind of wasted in their early part of their career. Um, So there is a, China is open at the time when I got my uh, bachelor degree, China is open to the outside world. But at the same time, my parents' income is very low compared to what China has, the money China has now, Hmm. right? So I remember that when when, when I first come to U.S., I I do not have a fellowship or scholarship come with me. So I was admitted by University of Houston. It has a relatively lower tuition compared to many private schools there. But I start with um, working actually in the cafeteria
0: mm-hmm. at
1: U- U- University of Houston for my first half year. And then I had opportunity to work with Farouk, um, Farouk Mystery, professor Professor and who offered me a research assistantship. So, you know, thinking back, it was like, it was such a huge risk. Like you just come here, you know, you don't really know right. what is going to happen. You have to have a sponsor okay. to come at that time okay. you, because we don't have money in our right. bank to sponsor sure. ourselves uh-huh. at that time. So my my father had um, um, some, he actually came to U.S. Houston for some outsourcing work. The company at Houston basically bring a group of engineers from China to work at Houston. So he, he had a, like a 6 months or one-year experience, and then he find a colleague who is willing to be a sponsor for me, you know, to just sign the paperwork, right? But by, uh, by, by nature, it's just uh, uh, signing the paper, but everything is on your own. You have to figure right. out a way, right. yeah, to So what kind yourself. of
0: engineer is your father?
1: He's a, uh, like a sh- offshore engineer, but it's more like designed uh, na- naval mm-hmm. architecture mm-hmm. kind of, uh, but it's more ship structure design and also um, dynamic system. He works on hydraulic system.
0: And your mother was also a researcher? Yeah, said? my
1: mother is more electrical kind of engineer, like cables, um, those kind yeah. of for communications. Yeah.
0: But academics mm-hmm. was partly ingrained in you. It was an expectation that you would pursue... Higher de- graduate degrees.
1: I think actually I have no idea when uh-huh. I come to US. I'm going to pursue a PhD degree uh-huh. because in China, the there's no there's very few people get graduate degree at that time. You know, bachelor degree is already kind of the highest degree at the at that point. So I think it's coming to US is more like you want to go to a society that has a opportunity or learn things. You know, and I was in a job which was. Uh, more like import export cooperation for a large ton-key project but i don't really like the, the business aspect this is of back the, in china back in china mm-hmm. i worked for 2 years mm-hmm. but i really do not enjoy the business aspect of, like signing contract you know those kind of thing i i enjoy more the technical aspect but moving forward for graduate degree initially i thought a master degree would be quite sufficient but i i think and again i want to th- you know think my advisor at that time for Rock Mystery really highly encouraged me to pursue a PhD at that time he was moving from Houston to Georgia Tech so um so he invited me to go with him and then i think that's a turning it can say it's a turning point in my life right and then he also encouraged me to think about um teaching which i never thought about before i never think that me as a person who speaks um, English as my second language, you know, how can I be a professor, right? But by heart, I think I really enjoy teaching. I remember I set up classroom for my younger brother in my house, you know, in the apartment, just teach him on the board of the closet, you know, the closet is full of the things that I wrote. Yeah, so I think it's Maybe by nature we we like something, mm-hmm. but the, my parents never said that you need to be a professor because mm-hmm. at at that time nobody right. there's no formal path to to become a professor. And they
0: were not They were not teaching. They were just doing research. There. Yeah,
1: they're their not work was never te- in the teaching yeah. environment. Yeah, yeah I did so, research. So when Farouk suggested
0: in- to you that you pursue PhD, did you communicate with your parents, and was it a deliberation or? Or everybody was supportive and you went on with...
1: Yeah, I, I felt like there's not much discussion because they really do not know much about what is going on in the U.S. And they pretty much trust that I, as long as I can survive here, right? right, right. <laughs> survive is the word yeah. that I use that. Um, I think they they think everything that what I decide to do must be good, yeah. good to pursue. So I think in your life things just happen in the way you know that you never imagined i would say that so now that i'm a professor and i'm looking back i feel like i'm very fortunate to become a professor but i never planned i never really dreamed i would say to, to be a professor when i was younger
0: are you from shanghai or the area yes near yeah
1: i grew up in shanghai, in shanghai. Yeah. yeah
0: and you've gone back and right you've continued yeah, s- subsequently yeah. to establish a yeah. relationship with, with Shanghai Tong. Yeah, yeah, so
1: I, I, I Shanghai Tong University, I have a very close collaborative relationship. Um, I have some students that I co-advise mm-hmm. with the colleague there. Mm-hmm. And then there's one more reason that bring me back again again was that um, I helped to create some exchange program with Northwestern. So I think um, my colleague Jian Chao first created the, the master degree program. Mm-hmm. So Shanghai Jiao Tong Northwestern has that program, and I in, every in, mechanics
0: or in, in mechanical uh, engineering. In mechanical so engineering. Shanghai
1: Jiao Tong mechanical engineering actually is the number one in China mm-hmm. these days. Um, so we have due degree for master student each year. I go back and uh, try to recruit some students, and also it's not just for students, but also the motivations encourage faculty collaboration. Mm-hmm. So I I go back and uh, we have research symposium we organized. Um and the, this last year that I, I helped to create a new program that's for undergraduate students, so that is exchange program. They pay their tuition to their own institution, so that is a new program. I think China has changed tremendously, you know, just like you say every I don't know how many times you travel to China, but every year when I go back, I see new buildings coming up and uh, new opportunities but in terms of the student uh, quality I would, or what the opportunity they have, I think it's totally different, I would say. I think students now in China, they probably have more freedom or luxury to think about what they want to do in the future. And at that time, when I started to go to college, it was, it, I think the China started to have the college system, resume the college system from 1978. So I was, my first year in college in 1984. Um, and I'm the first year that we can choose our own job after graduation. So I I feel lucky in many regard. Like I I didn't miss the time that I'm supposed to study in the school. You know, people like a couple years older than me, uh-huh. they don't have opportunity. You know, so I didn't miss the time that we can choose our own job. You know, so um, so I think the, the 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 new wealth that China have certainly offered a lot more opportunity for the young generation. And
0: they ex- and people expect it. People have an expectation that there will be opportunities for them?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I think these days I feel like um, even though there's still a lot of people coming to U.S. and they want to pursue higher degree, I think they still trust the U.S. offers the best higher education. Mm-hmm. That's the reason you see a lot of master students these days from China, right? A PhD, same thing. But there's a lot, a large percent of students now return to China after they finish study here, especially master student. I think they can have, they can find a good, very good job um, in China these days because a lot of the joint venture company and also the income, the difference of the income, the gap is much, much um, smaller these days. So this, because of the new opportunity, I think attracts a lot of people to go back there.
0: You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from June 6th, 2018, with Professor Wei Chen of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Northwestern University. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. So I mentioned these, uh, the, the book, Monograph, um, with your co-authors, yes. both uh-huh. of whom were students of yours, mm-hmm. um, where it talks about integrating consumer preferences into engineering design. How mm. does one do that?
1: Yeah, so it, it actually it, it starts from there's a lot of debates in the, um, in the engineering design community about what is a true objective function when you optimize something. So there was a lot of debate about whether using multi-attribute methods is correct. I don't know whether you heard about this debate, you know. Oh. Yeah, so it's like an engineer has to make a decision. He has to improve the fuel economy. He has to reduce the weight. How he makes the trade-off.
0: Weigh, weighing different factors. Yes, well. weighing
1: mm-hmm. the different factors. Mm-hmm. So in the current practice or in the literature, people just put weights on right. things, right? But where do the weights coming from? Mm-hmm. That is really the what motiva- motivates me to do this research. Mm-hmm. So consumer preference modeling focus on try to predict people's choice at the end as a function of all those attributes that one person may consider when they make the choice. So in the vehicle context, it is the question about when this person decides to buy this car, what are the importance of those attributes play a role in this process. But in instead of giving ways to the attributes, it actually creates a choice prediction function we call, you know, consumer preference modeling, and and also try to predict individuals' behavior rather than as a group. And so the aggr- at the end you aggregate individuals' choice together, the probability actually that is probabilistic prediction. Like what is the chance if these two things are have this kind of a similar utility the chance of they choose one versus other is only 50%. Right. So it's based on those kind of theory. But it is a very interesting research, and now we're still having some project on that is actually using the network analysis to do... It's a data science problem becomes. like We have the data that we get from China with about... Um, Fifty thousand respondents, and they what car they considered, what kind of attributes that, for those cars, and what the choice they make, what um, how many cars they considered. We basically using network modeling technique try to predict the relationship between the product and human, and more interestingly is we could actually include the social network behavior because now in the network context the link between the human or the customer represents the social link, or it could be uh, the similarity of their social profile. And then those information become useful in predicting choice. Sometimes it may look very irrational. You know, this product is better than the other. Why the person choose that one, right? It's because maybe influenced by their friend. So that is how we model customers' preference, is to model it as a prediction of what is the chance a person will choose this one product versus the other products?
0: But then you're catering to a preference rather than a function.
1: So it is a function of preference. Well, no. by function
0: I don't mean mathematical function. I mean yeah. I mean performance. In other words, you know, we in traditional maybe I'm misusing the term here, but since I'm not really an expert in this area, but design, engineering design, one imagines is the. Uh, purposeful application of principles in order to achieve a function, in order to achieve a behavior or an outcome of something that you're designing, of a product. So you're, you're building a product that, that is supposed to behave in a certain way or perform a function in a certain way. Um, and the multiple objectives that you described mm-hmm. here could be you know, the, the cost of production, yeah. the ease of use, the you know, speed at which it responds, and you know, various things like that yeah. right, that you have yeah. to weigh. What you're describing, if I understand correctly, is uh, how do we design this thing so that it'll sell?
1: Yeah. How do we design this thing that people will choose at the end, which means it will sell.
0: It'll sell. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, I, and that's fair. Obviously, companies you know mm-hmm. are you know are, are there to to successfully build their business, right? Mm-hmm. And so so mm-hmm. is that the so it's a it's a business oriented. Mm-hmm. Design context.
1: Yeah, but it's very different from market research. Like market research, try to say what kind of advertisement I should put on so I can promote people's like uh, to buy more of this Propaganda, product. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so my interest here is the what is the impact of adding a design feature, or mm. what is the impact of improved fuel economy on people's choice behavior. So it kind of directly relates to the engineering design. Yeah. Those models can be used to, pro- to provide guidance for engineering design decision or or can be served as objective function in doing optimization.
0: That would include form factor and shape and other things than just fuel consumption, right? I mean, aesthetics would be yeah, part of that. Yeah, aesthetic will be yeah. an important part yeah. of it. Or if it's, another, yeah. if it's a hand tool, you know, how... how- how easy it is to operate or hold or something.
1: Yeah, like that. so I think there's a th- that brings up a, a, something important. I want to make is that in engineering design research, like start to realize, or maybe the field is is going in that way is the recognition of the importance of understanding behavior, not just the designer, but also the consumer. So in traditional engineering designs, engineering. Is designed just an artifact, mm-hmm. like a material. You know, a majority of my project these days, probably more than eighty percent, is just designing the artifact, improving a material performance. But another twenty percent, this is a project working on consumer preference. Really, try to look at behavioral modeling. That is not physics based, but it's important in the engineering decision making.
0: So another area where consumers make choices, or where humans make choices, it. Um, Sounds to me, and it's very, sort of very current in, in in public life these days. Is autonomous vehicles or semi-autonomous yes, vehicles yeah. not mm. in the purchasing of a vehicle, but in the operating of a vehicle, mm-hmm. where you have, you know, a, a vehicle that's semi-autonomous, autonomously performing certain functions, performing certain behaviors, but there is a need for a human to intervene at various times or yes. to respond to the information. Yes. Yeah. And there too. I guess, the design of how the information is communicated to the, to the human yes, and, mm-hmm. and the way the, even the physical environment is designed that the human is situated in yeah. will have an effect on the choices that the yes, human makes. definitely, yeah. Uh, is that yeah. another area where these probabilistic models of looking at multiple attributes yes, and yeah. arriving at sort of a co- yeah, you know, yeah, yeah The probabilistic, uh, probabilistic model is
1: very useful here because all the human behavior is very difficult to predict. So there's a lot of uncertainty and the noise. So those models all have terms that count for those kind of uncertainties. So the prediction is probabilistic. And the, in the autonomous vehicle situation, it is a case you really have to look at human, the interaction between human and technology. So you need to set up a behavioral study to truly understand what people may react You know, I'm not doing those kind of research, but I know that there are people who are doing this kind of research, basically human behavioral study, and they introduce different technology and see how humans respond. So those work are, they do involve design of experiments, but it's not computer simulation, but it's more physical experiments. And they do involve work on uh, analyzing the data and collecting the data. So I think there's a lot of interaction with social scientists as well as psychology, people in psychology, they uh, they can, uh, they help to design those experiments that are more meaningful mm-hmm. to capture humans' behavior or mind.
0: There's been a, a, a drive, a, a movement within the engineering education community for probably decades here now to introduce more and more design into the undergraduate curriculum, for example, mm-hmm. um, various accreditation mechanisms that sort of require or expect that and, uh, and and you know in my own uh, department uh, certainly there are courses now that are explicitly designated as design part of the design sequence yes. through the mm-hmm. undergraduate curriculum mm-hmm. uh, and you know all, many of us in, in who are inclined to pedagogically sort of think of. Introducing design also in other courses that aren't explicitly known as design courses, yes. but where mm-hmm. having the design experience gives a little more real life, you know, exposure yes. in the context mm-hmm. of learning something more fundamental. Yeah. But of course, there's a balance here between not mm-hmm. between knowing the fu- the fundamentals yes. and actually having mm-hmm. firsthand an un- understanding of how to derive an a, 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 an equation or a model yes. based on mm-hmm. first principles, first you know, mathematical ideas versus just using software, for example, that, sure. that sort of does yeah. it, you know, in a canned way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the balance between uh, too much emphasis on design and too, or yes. too much emphasis mm-hmm. on fundamentals, I guess. So, so what's your thought on yeah? On where I, that...
1: Yeah, that's the thing we struggle all the time. You know, Northwestern has a very strong design program. We start from freshman year. We call it design uh, thinking, and um, in, the, in the, it it has actually involved people in English department to. To teach co teacher the course together, and the the purpose is to teach students how to communicate results. Um, but I think w- I, I do observe. I also teach senior design course at the, the senior capstone level. We students work on real industry sponsored projects. At that point, I think I noticed that students these days are much capable in presenting their results. They're much capable in writing reports, and those training kind of kind of attributed to their. Um, freshmen start from freshman year, they're able to do those kind of things. But on the other hand, I think a it, it constant, um, how to say, uh, we, the faculty who teach engineering courses all think that our students lacking sufficient analysis skill. Even just to do a finite element analysis, how to do this correctly, there's a lot of uh, technique there involved. Um, I think students, they just use finite element to demonstrate the results but they're not used at the key point or something maybe can be analyzed just by some simple calculation of beam structure or something like that but they, they didn't realize they can do that and you just use a final element right and then the results are wrong you know um so I think it is uh, it is something that uh, that I hope that uh, a rigorous curriculum have to have both um, I think to some extent we also you know, some of my colleagues in the Special Mechanical Engineering Department, we felt like those. sometimes the design does take away um, the the, the op- opportunity for students to move learn deeper into analysis method. But on the other hand, I think the problem can be solved maybe by doing more project-based learning in the analysis courses so that students do get exposure to the needs to the need for some design thinking in those class, but at the same time they get deeper into the, the specific analysis technique.
0: You use the word exposure just now, mm-hmm. and, and I'm wondering what, what you think of, of this statement here, that an undergraduate engineering education is almost entirely about exposure and not about integration.
1: Um. I think, yeah, I felt like different, really different schools have very different way of doing this. And I start to pay more attention to this because my oldest, old, eldest son just goes into college. So he's a freshman year. I never realized that extracurriculum plays such a big role in the undergraduate life. You know, they are not just learning, but they're doing a lot of other activities. But in terms of learning, I think... You, you can still see there's a lot of different philosophy, different schools that are following. Um, I think Northwestern has a good balance, I would think. We have a strong engineering route, but at the same time, we want to teach students the ability of how to learn, not just teach them the solution, right, to the problem. But on the other hand, this ability of how to learn, how do you define it? I think each of us as a professor have very different definition of a way of doing it um
0: do you apply mm -hmm. your um your own science Mm -hmm. of design and decision making yeah do you apply it when you think of of how to design the curriculum or how to design the learning environment do you bring back your knowledge to that context
1: i think that uh, yeah intuitively i would say we are we always say who are the customer that's the first question we ask, right? You know, when we design a, a curriculum, are we serving the students or we're serving the society? Or what, who do we serve? Yeah. Or the company who wants to hire the student? Yeah. But your
0: science is database. Your science is quantitative, mm-hmm. after all. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I guess my question is is quite literally not when you start from yeah. scratch. Yes, yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, having mm-hmm. to recognize the, the the statement I made before about more about exposure than integration is sort of, this uh, comment that you made, uh, some of your colleagues suggesting that perhaps the analysis skills are lacking, mm-hmm. it's not because we didn't expose the students to analyses mm-hmm. or analysis tools earlier on, but it's perhaps because they don't, and I'm not blaming the students for this, I'm mm-hmm. possibly blaming mm-hmm. the curriculum or whatnot for this, it's not retained from course to course, right? The, the connectivity yes. mm-hmm. between courses or between years yes. one to the next is, is rather weak. Yes, yeah. And it could be because, literally, in many cases, it's the first time the students are seeing this material. And even if they do Mm -hmm. well in one course, Mm -hmm. if it's not then tied very closely in with what happens in the next course, it's sort of put aside, right? Yeah. Whatever they learned earlier is, okay, I'm done with that. Now I'm moving on to the next subject. Yeah. And so when we come to a capstone design class, where, you know, the idea, the hope would be, I suppose, that given an industrial type of project, they would try to. Bring together all of these different aspects of what they've learned. Mm-hmm. They may not be able to do so because the material that they learned in their first se- first or second year in these encapsulated courses. It's a little bit like back to the conversation we had about journal articles, yes. right? That mm-hmm. Each course is its encapsulated little piece, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there is no thread yeah. that pulls yeah. together. And so, I guess going back to my question about yeah. data, do you and your design colleagues who are in, active at Northwestern or elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Uh, Think of this as one of your problems that you can apply your
1: Yeah, to. I think it's definitely that you bring an important point, is we need to do collaborative design, designing our curriculum, right? You know, every design faculty have some courses, they have ownership, right? So how do we integrate this together? I think we we in Northwestern, Western, I would say we did this. We have been doing this quite well because we have the Seago Design Institute as umbrella that kind of coordinate the design effort, not only engineering, but cross over the whole university that involve management, um, business school, and the school of communications. And the graduate level, we also have cluster, the design cluster, that I'm also the co-director that we do research cross over. So, but in terms of curriculum design, I think... I think we're doing very solid work in certain areas, like design courses, and also we have this engineer analysis, one, two, three that we did at um, we're doing at Northwestern. Really, um, it was something. If I'm correct, Prof. Kate Brinson has leading the effort to totally revolutionize the way it was done. Several ten years ago, that all those three classes in a sequence—actually four of them—engineer analysis, so they can be taught in the way that, as you're saying, they're progressive and they build one on top of each other. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's also weak areas in our curriculum that maybe there's very little connection. You know, certain other courses. You know, in 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 the requirement list, we probably should think together all those classes, right? But just like any design is very complicated. You know, when you try to integrate everything together and there's also personal differences in terms of how a professor wants to teach. That's, I think, it's very different from a high school, I think, the college teaching. It's largely driven by a lot of the things that individual professor believes um, and where their talent fits, right? And most of us have not... Being trained to to do teaching to a certain extent, we have to keep learning how do we do this correctly.
0: Mm-hmm. Belief is an interesting thing, interesting word to use. I, I think mm-hmm. it's entirely true. Mm-hmm. And that's not only of how we teach, but also of how we do research, right? And how, yeah, we, yeah. how we engage with students and how we engage with industry. It's all, in some sense, belief Based. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean faith. I mean belief in the yes. sense of you know mm-hmm. uh, ideas about how one should engage or how, what one can expect or what is the worthy of pursuing and not worthy of pursuing. Yes. Is yeah. that something that you take in your engage in your interactions with your large number of students that you've advised and and postdocs and so on? Have, do you feel like you've been uh, actively trying to share a belief system with them? And again, I'm not talking about mm-hmm. a f- religious mm-hmm. belief system. Yeah. But, more of a principled system of how to approach the world.
1: Yeah, I think I, I kind of feel each of us or pro, uh, someone who goes through a PhD process learn a lot from our advisors in both positive and negative way, right? And our style um, are influenced by our advisors. Um, I think my advisor, Broke chemistry, uh, he always asks us a question. You need to think harder. What is a research question you try to answer? Here, you know, so I tend to use the similar kind of uh, philosophy, and he's very attentive to his students. And uh, I was giving a lot of opportunity to um, improve my speaking, you know, English. He tried to actually send me to uh, private lessons. You know, you probably can't believe these days <laughs> that a professor sent you to private lessons for English. Um, I, he sent me to. Um, Germany for four months to to do internship. Maybe he sees some weakness in my ability of uh, working on real engineering kind of problems or something. So he felt maybe that's necessary. I, I don't I never ask him why he sent me there, mm-hmm. but I'm just guessing. So I think this kind of his uh, um, style influenced me in the sense I also try to um, pay attention to the different strengths my students have and try to figure out the best path for them, and try to offer them opportunities so they can really uh, change and they really grow, you know, from their three-year or five-year experience in in the lab. Yeah, and in my group, I also very encourage collaboration. So maybe my style also influenced my student's style that I collaborate to many, many different people. So they also tend to be very collaborative with each other, like in the lab even that. There's a lot of joint work.
0: Right. Wonderful. Um, thank yeah. you very much, Wei. It's been a delight. Um, yeah, it's I, my
1: pleasure of talking to you. I hope, yeah. I hope this
0: was comfortable for you.
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it has gone to the direction that I probably didn't anticipate it, but, right. but it's perfectly, it's great that it, it make me think about myself, you know, yeah. to some extent, yeah. yeah.
0: I'm, I'm sure people will enjoy listening to this. Thank you very much yeah. again.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Wei Chen from Northwestern University. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.